Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Richard Lane will join us to discuss the neuroscience of enduring change. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, how can enduring change be in psychotherapy? Can advances from neuroscience provide insight into these changes? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Richard Lane. Dr. Lane is a clinical psychiatrist and psychotherapist trained in cognitive neuroscience and emotion research, whose research has focused on brain mechanisms of emotion, motion regulation, emotional awareness, neurovisceral integration, and the mechanisms by which emotion influences susceptibility to sudden cardiac death. His background in cognitive and effective neuroscience is now being integrated with his ongoing experience as a therapist and psychotherapy educator. He has compiled a new book, edited together with Dr. Lynn Nadell, entitled The Neuroscience of Enduring Change, Implications for Psychotherapy, and joins us today to discuss this very fascinating topic. Dr. Lane, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it is certainly our pleasure, certainly a fascinating book you've edited here, The Neuroscience of Enduring Change, in which you talk about how some basic advances in neuroscience are informing changes in psychotherapy. Yeah, I am an academic psychiatrist. I see my own patients, I supervise trainees, and I do research on topics related to mental health and psychotherapy. And as an instructor teaching psychiatrists and training, struck with the challenges that residents face when they have to learn different types of psychotherapy that have different theoretical backgrounds. And I was trying to think about ways to simplify thing and things and come to the common denominators that really made for effective psychotherapy. I've been very active in the whole area of brain and emotional functioning. And in the past 20 years, there's been a real resurgence of interest in memory and how memories can be updated. And when I came to realize that there were important interactions between emotion and memory, I started thinking seriously about how our increasing understanding of how the brain works with regard to memory and emotion might relate to how psychotherapy works. And that was kind of the basis for it. And I was able to work with Lynn Nadell, who's a world-class memory researcher, and two other colleagues, uh, Les Greenberg, who created emotion-focused psychotherapy, and another leading memory researcher, Dr. Lee Ryan. And we put our theory together about how memory and emotion interact to create enduring change. And we published that in a paper in a leading neuroscience journal in 2015. It was very rigorously reviewed, and we were inspired to continue working on this because it was accepted in this really high-profile journal. And that led us to expand upon that basic theory and create a whole book where we invited a series of scientists and practitioners to cover in depth 
the various elements of the basic science underlying this, as well as the clinical application in different types of psychotherapy. And then a major goal of the book is to conclude with defining the research agenda going forward. What is the theory of memory and emotion that you have that is relevant for making these changes, and how is it underpinned by the evidence from neuroscience? Well, we think that there are three key steps to bringing about enduring change. Part of the background here is that when we go about our daily lives, we may not realize it, but we're constantly making predictions about what's going to happen, for example, in social interactions. And those predictions are based on our past experiences, our memories. So memories aren't just a record of the past. They're a guide to the future. And so we've discovered that memories, whenever they are recalled, become malleable. They become open to revision based on new information that comes in. And then the memories are put back into storage, and that's called reconsolidation. And what we're what we're really interested in is how can we use that known mechanism for therapeutic benefit? So we think the first step in psychotherapy is to recall old problematic, painful memories, bring them to mind and activate the associated painful emotion with those old memories, which is not easy to do. But when you do that, you make those old problematic memories modifiable. That's the real advantage. Now with a trained psychotherapist who can interact effectively, the next step is what we call a corrective emotional experience. So, so often people, for example, have had shameful experiences in the past that are traumas that they've never spoken to anyone about. And when someone opens up, recalls the memory and the whole painful feeling, they might expect to be criticized or judged. If a therapist responds in a non-judgmental way, in a caring way, in a compassionate way, that is counter to expectation, and it's a corrective emotional experience. And that emotion interacts and updates that memory, right? And then the idea is you need, the way reconsolidation works is that you have to have a night of sleep after that to really consolidate the change in the memory. And the third step is then to keep practicing going into problematic situations, maybe seeing them a little bit differently, responding to them a little bit differently because your memory is different. And as a result of that, you may behave a little bit differently, you react differently, and you might have different emotional responses like the corrective emotional experience that will then ingrain the new form of the memory, if you will. And it's those changed memories that then are the guide for future behavior, which results in more adaptive behavior and people having less distress and more happiness in their lives. Are there features, are there facets of when that memory is recalled that promotes overriding negative emotions with new emotions? It's very interesting having devised this general way of understanding things, there are important research questions. So some of the experimental literature on memory reconsolidation suggests that sometimes just a reminder of a past event without explicit recall of the past event may be sufficient. But my hunch is that actively recalling it 
and bringing it to, to mind consciously is going to really help. And I think what's very, very important is authentic experience of the emotion associated with the painful memory. So it's really experiencing the actual shame, the actual distress, the disappointment, the sadness, whatever it might be, to really fully experience it along with the activation and recall of the memory. Then, then the memory is really alive and, and malleable and I think open to revision. Certainly, when one thinks of psychotherapy, one thinks of having to revisit memories and in some ways try and deal with it, but that attempt to overwrite those memories hasn't been as investigated. Well, you know, it's really interesting. There's a pretty long history to this. You know, the person who originated psychotherapy, as we now think about it, it was Sigmund Freud over a century ago, right? And he actually was the first person to describe what we're calling memory reconsolidation. He called it retranscription. Basically, there were a series of studies that in the second half of the 20th century that supported the idea of memory modifiability, but there was a seminal study in the year 2000 that really proved, and this was a study, a laboratory study in rodents, carefully controlled and it's been replicated numerous times, that memories really can be updated. And ever since then, there's been more, not only animal experimentation, but experimentation in human beings and it's harder to do this kind of research in human beings because we can't use the same kind of powerful drugs we can't make lesions in the brain etc but once the foothold got established in human beings showing that it's, it's the same kind of phenomenon there was a pioneering investigator named Bruce Ecker who wrote the first book in 2012 on how memory reconsolidation was highly relevant to psychotherapy and should be a guide to how psychotherapy is done. And so a lot of credit goes to him. We've expanded upon that and talked about a more general model and bringing in the brain systems involved and, and things of that sort that make it possible to expand on the research agenda. So as much as possible, we like psychotherapy to be founded and based on science. And so I think it's only in relatively recent years that the science has come up to speed to enable us to draw on these phenomena and see how they apply clinically. There are, of course, a number of neural mechanisms, neurotransmitter systems that can facilitate these memory changes. Is there a role or a place in the model for integrating pharmaceutical approaches with the psychotherapeutic approaches to affecting these changes? Yeah, that's an excellent question. It's well established that for all major psychiatric disorders, like depression, different kinds of anxiety, panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, etc., the combination of psychotherapy and psychotropic medication, antidepressant medication, for example, works better than either alone. Okay, so that's given. Okay, but What's really fascinating and has been a surprise to me is once you realize that reconsolidation happens during sleep, and furthermore, we're especially interested in emotional memories, which in particular seem to be reconsolidated preferentially during REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep when you're dreaming. It turns out that antidepressant medications 
depending on which one, influence and can inhibit REM sleep. So one of the implications of this new model is that you have to be very careful about what the effects of the medication are on reconsolidation mechanisms, perhaps during REM sleep, for example, because it could be counterproductive in terms of having an optimal effect for psychotherapy. So for example, if you're taking antidepressant medication and your depression is improved, but it's interfering with REM sleep, maybe the psychotherapy that you're doing to prevent recurrence will not be as effective. So this is just bringing attention to this issue and you can modify which medication you give accordingly. Right now, people don't think about that at all. As a clinician, so many psychiatric disorders are associated with sleep impairment and clinically, we just wanna get people to sleep, right? If you sleep, you're gonna be doing better. This is adding another wrinkle to it. Let's not interfere with memory reconsolidation mechanisms as a side effect, an unintended side effect of the medication because it might interfere with having that enduring effect of psychotherapy. Do you think that there's now a growing awareness that this should be part of process of psychotherapy? And do you think that focus is percolating through the field? Well, people are getting interested in this, but there, there are all sorts of interesting implications. So one important one would be taking a nap after a psychotherapy session, right? What's really interesting, you know, we talked about that period of lability where the reconsolidation window is open for four to six hours, okay? So what we typically do is, you know, people come for a psychotherapy session and we don't really think about what people do afterwards, going back to work or, you know, working out or whatever, those experiences that you have after psychotherapy can influence the effect of the psychotherapy based on this idea of the window being open for four to six hours. But if you take a nap shortly after, you can essentially eliminate those other influences possibly and maybe lock in what happened in the psychotherapy. So that's one example. But if you taking seriously the idea that what we're working with is memory and what kind of memories are activated during sleep. There's a whole field of research on sleep and memory. If, for example, you rehearse memories before you go to sleep, those will influence content of your dreams, for example. If you have a corrective emotional experience in psychotherapy, it might be useful to think about that and reactivate the memory and the feeling before you go to sleep, how great that felt to be responded to in that way. And that might help with the reconsolidation process. We don't know. But the beauty of this is that we can draw on these basic science mechanisms and principles to ask new questions and do new kinds of research with the goal of improving clinical care. All therapist offices should have places for a nap right after the session. That's right. <laughs> what do you think then are the directions for advancing this idea, research that needs to be done, and avenues then for moving it into practice? Well, a very important next step is to do research testing memory reconsolidation mechanisms in psychotherapy. And, you know, that's challenging work to do, right? But I think that that needs to be done. I think there's also basic brain imaging work 
you know, there are multiple types of memory, and we think that the ones that are most relevant to psychotherapy are what we call schematic memories, memories of patterns. For example, if you go to a restaurant, you have a basic idea of what's going to happen. What's the sequence of events? Similarly, when you think about a romantic relationship or a family relationship or a friendship, you have an idea of what is likely to happen, right? So the whole area of schematic memory and how schematic memories work in the brain and how they get updated with new information, particularly new emotional information, and how that happens in the brain. That can be examined in a preclinical way in the neuroimaging setting, right? So you can train people in learning some schematic memories, and then you can experimentally update them, giving them new emotional information. You have appropriate controls where you can update one memory, but not another one that you've learned and, you know, show differential effects and also show how are the brain structures interacting. We think, for example, that the amygdala and the hippocampus are important structures, hippocampus being mainly a memory structure, the amygdala primarily emotion. We think that there's interactions between the two that are going on that, you know, predict memory reconsolidation. Establishing that basic science framework can then be applied to patients in psychotherapy. And you can do brain imaging of these systems at baseline and in follow-up to see that the changes have happened. All that work needs to be done. Again, it's exciting because we're capitalizing on well-established basic science processes and applying it clinically now. And the research needs to be done to show that it really does work this way clinically. But obviously, we've gotten as far as we have because the idea that it works this way is very plausible. We now have to prove it. We were talking with Dr. Richard Lane. He edited the new book, Neuroscience of Enduring Change, Implications for Psychotherapy. Dr. Lane, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Really appreciated the invitation and it was a pleasure talking with you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.